Our reading this morning is taken from the Gospel according to Mark. Gospel of Mark. We're going to read from chapter 16, chapter 16, verses 9 to 20. 9 to 20. When Jesus rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had driven seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him and who were mourning and weeping. When they heard that Jesus was alive and that she had seen him, they did not believe it. Afterwards, Jesus appeared in a different form to two of them while they were walking in the country. These returned and reported it to the rest, but they didn't believe them either. Later, Jesus appeared to the eleven as they were eating. He rebuked them for their lack of faith and their stubborn refusal to believe those who had seen him after he had risen. He said to them, Go into all the world and preach the good news to all creation. Whoever believes and is baptised will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name they will drive out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up snakes with their hands. And when they drink deadly poison, it will not hurt them at all. They will place their hands on sick people, and they will get well. After the Lord had spoken to them, he was taken up into heaven and sat at the right hand of God. Then the disciples went out and preached everywhere, and the Lord worked with them and confirmed his word by the signs that accompanied it. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Thank you, Mike, for bringing us God's word, and to Marie for um, that wonderful children's talk about what we carry. And I know many uh, females, sisters, relationships where handbags have far too much um, baggage in them. We're thinking this morning um, about that reading um, from Mark's Gospel, and um, I want to think about appearances and begin with a story um, at a factory, and this security guard saw this man who was walking out through the gate where there was a barrier, and he had a wheelbarrow, and he had contents of the wheelbarrow that were covered, and so the security guard was very suspicious of the package in the wheelbarrow. And the guard stopped him and said, look, I want to look at um, what's in that wheelbarrow. And so they uncovered it, it was rubbish, toot, you name it, nothing of importance. Anyway, the next day, the chap was walking out through the security gate with a wheelbarrow with some suspicious-looking electronic packages. And once again, the security guard looked uncovered. It was just broken down um, electronic equipment. The third day, (coughs) the man walks out, and um, he has 
another wheelbarrow covered with stuff. And so the security guard stops him and says, look, what's going on here? I know you're taking stuff that you shouldn't be taking. I won't, uh, I won't tell on you. Uh, just tell me what you're taking. And the man said very sheepishly, I'm taking wheelbarrows, not anything else. And so appearances can be deceptive. And I want us to look at this passage of scripture in Mark's gospel. Um, And it's really uh, an important passage, but I want to look at it from a historical point of view. If you open your Bibles at chapter 16 of the Gospel of Mark and verse 9, um, there will be an inscription here that says, early manuscripts omit Mark verses 9 to 20. So is this piece of scripture authentic or not? And so I just want to look at that for the moment. To put it in perspective, it's really important that we know that 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 note of this early manuscript, some some didn't include, verses 9 to 20, is not a recent development. This is something that has been in the history for centuries. Uh, that verses 9 to 20 may not have been part of the original gospel of Mark or may not have been penned uh, by uh, Mark. There was a monk named Ephraim who lived in AD 900s who wrote these words in a manuscript of gospels between Mark gospel chapter 16 verse 8 and 9. In some of the copies The evangelist finishes here, up to which point also Eusebius, who lived in AD 265 to 339, made canon sections. So what does this all mean? Should we accept it as part of scripture or not? Well, the evidence for holding these verses in the Gospels is staggering. When we look at all the manuscripts, basically remember they didn't have photocopiers back in AD 200 or whatever. They were written out by hand right up until uh, the 15th, 16th century when we first had uh, the, the, the duplication. And there were 1,600 plus Greek manuscripts And most of these manuscripts include verses 9 to 20. And, okay, if you say, right, 9 to 20 wasn't part of one of the manuscripts, what does that tell us? Or what does it take away from us? And it actually doesn't take away anything that we don't already know. So if you go into John's Gospel 2021, you'll have all of the early accounts of the resurrection of our Lord. If you go into Luke's Gospel, who also wrote Acts of the Apostles, you will find the resurrection accounts in Luke's Gospel. If you go into Matthew's Gospel, chapter 28, you'll also have the same account. If you go into 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and the Apostle Paul and the resurrection, when we remember the Lord's Supper, you'll find the resurrection account. 
So it's just really important to be authentic with you. That you may have wondered when we've read these passages of scriptures, well, what does this mean? Sometimes uncertainty makes us uncomfortable. And we've certainly felt that, haven't we, in this past year, with all the uncertainty of the way life across the globe has been with the coronavirus pandemic. But you know, even if we ended Mark's Gospel, chapter 16, at verse 8, we lose nothing of our faith. God calls us to trust him in the face of uncertainty. That is what faith is. It says in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, without faith, it's impossible to please God. Sincere faith is the assurance of things hoped for. So the majority of the manuscripts has verses 9 to 20 in, and I love the authenticity of um, the uh, writers, the bishops, um, who put the scriptures together in the early church, saying, well, some early manuscripts didn't have it. They're being very open, authentic. But the vast majority did have them. Okay, so that's that point. Secondly, we are living in post-Easter times. And I want to talk about the historical um, appearances of Jesus that we find in Mark chapter 16 that Mike read to us. And it really bugs me sometimes when we live in society where people will have uh, one set of qualifications for history to do with, say, Roman history, and another set of criteria about biblical history. And so the biblical structure in which the Gospels and the Epistles, they are eyewitnesses' accounts of the resurrection of Christ. And it's important that we treat the evidence of the Bible, this precious book, is treated on a level playing field as other accounts of history. So, for example, hands up if you've heard of Julius Caesar. He was a Roman emperor. And often people will dismiss out of hand the Bible accounts, particularly in the Gospels, yet they wholeheartedly believe in the evidence for Julius Caesar. Well, can I just point out, the accounts of Julius Caesar were written 100 years after his death. And we know his death was quite notable by, by the assassination uh, of, of his life. Whereas Jesus and his resurrection, the accounts of that were 20 years after his death. And we know the Apostle Paul was one of the earliest writers. And then what, how historians work is, is the frequency and the consistency of the manuscripts. They'll all be compared and looked at. This is true for secular history as well as biblical history. And that's where you get the probability of evidence. And the manuscripts for Jesus as a historical person and Caesar compares incredibly favorably. Both were historical figures who lived on this planet. So where does that leave us? 
What it does is it forces us to take the Bible very seriously and the accounts of his resurrection. We need to make a decision and a response to that. And if you start reading the Gospels, the great philosopher um, C.S. Lewis, who was at Oxford and Cambridge University, a philosopher of English, he said, you can't say Jesus was a good man and not believe what he said about himself. You could say he's mad, but you could say he's God. He's true what it was said about him. And that's where we in this church stand. We put our whole life into the truth of the resurrection of Christ. Like many millions who've gone before us in the faith of Christ. Indeed, Prince Philip himself, as a committed Christian, trusted in the risen Christ. And so it's really important that we pay attention to the efficacy of the Bible. If the sources for Caesar, for Julius Caesar, are good enough for classicists to study and accept, then we should also seriously assess the core descriptions of Jesus' life from the sources closest to him. And we find in Luke's Gospel, chapter 24 and verse 10, we find the appearance of the risen Christ to Mary Magdalene. We find it here in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 16. And you might say, well, they were deluded. Okay, well, hold that thought. Let's go on later into Luke's Gospel, and you've got the story, remember, of the two disciples who were leaving Jerusalem after the events of Passover week, where they had such high hopes that Jesus would be the Messiah. He was hung up on a cross, he was executed, and then he was buried. They were forlorn. And we read in Luke's account the story of the Emmaus Road, where they're heading out, disgruntled, lost, and then they encounter this person who, who talks to them about Jesus, who talks to them about his promises to them. And it's only when they break bread over dinner that they recognize the risen Christ was with them. And what happened to them? Did they carry on going? They didn't. They turned around and headed back into the city of Jerusalem, headed back to face potential persecution, potential death because of what encounter they had on the Emmaus Road. We find in verse 36 of Luke's Gospel, he appears to all the disciples in one go. And it continues. So you, you can't have people all deluded at once. If you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, you'll find the Apostle Paul who says this. He says that on the third day, according to the scriptures, he appeared to Peter. Then he appeared to the 12 apostles. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers and sisters at the same time. You can't all be hallucinating at once with 500 people. And then the arguments. Remember, they were in fear. Is it all fabrication? 
The disciples, the followers of Jesus, were behind locked doors. All of them. And would you die for a lie? And all of those 500, surely there'd be one of them who broke to say, no, his body was stolen from the tomb. He didn't really be raised from the dead. And then what changes? It's not just that they, they're overcome from fear to faith. You then have this powerful movement out of Jerusalem telling the gospel with great courage and conviction. It's an extraordinary turnaround. Eleven of the twelve disciples were killed for their faith. The apostle Peter was hung upside down at his own request on the, on the crucifix to be killed. Then, my friends, prophecy is fulfilled. It says in the Old Testament, like the Passover lamb, none of Christ's bones will be broken. The prophecy was in Exodus chapter 12 and verse 46. It reads, it must be eaten inside the house. This is the Passover lamb. Take none of the meat outside the house. Do not break any of the bones of the lamb. Remember the lamb represented the sacrifice to God in the Old Testament. And then Jesus the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Let me read to you John 19, verse 31 following. Now it was the day of preparation, and the next day was to be a special Sabbath, because the Jewish leaders did not want the bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath. They asked Pilate to have legs broken and bodies taken down. The soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man who'd been crucified with Jesus, then those of the other man. But when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water, a sign of death. The man who saw it has given testimony, and his testimony is true. He knows he tells the truth, and he testifies so that you also may believe. These things happen so the scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones were broken, as was the custom in crucifixion. Peter Stoner, chairman of the Departments of Mathematics and Astronomy at Pasadena College in California, was passionate about biblical prophecies. With 600 students from IVP, Christian Fellowship, Stoner looked at eight specific prophecies about Jesus. They came up with extremely conservative, cautious probabilities to each one being fulfilled, and then considered the likelihood of Jesus fulfilling all eight of the biblical prophecies. The conclusion of his research was staggering. The prospect that anyone would satisfy the eight prophecies was one to the power of ten to the power of seventeen. In science speaks, he describes it like this: Let us try to visualize the chance of Jesus fulfilling all eight prophecies in one go. If you mark ten tickets and place all the tickets in a hat and thoroughly stir them, and then ask a blindfolded man to draw one, his chance of getting the right ticket is one in ten. So we got the maths. 
Suppose that we take 10 to the power of 17 silver dollars and lay them on the face of the state of Texas in the United States. They would cover all of the state in two feet deep of silver dollars. Now mark one of these silver dollars and stir the whole mass thoroughly over the whole of the state. Blindfold a man and tell him he can travel to any part of the state of Texas as he wishes, but he must pick one silver dollar and say that this is the right one. What chance would he have of getting the right one? Just the same chance that the prophets would have had of writing these eight prophecies and having them all come true in one man from their day to the present time, providing they wrote using their wisdom. This is evidence, my friends, that demands a verdict. The colleagues we work with, our neighbours, our society, resurrection, Easter demands a verdict. Josh McDowell, an American evangelist, has written a marvellous book called Evidence That Demands a Verdict. I encourage you to read it, to pass it to your friends. There was a lawyer who was adamant he was going to prove using the courts of law that Jesus did not rise from the dead, using all the mechanisms of the courts of law, all the processes of thought. That man was called Frank Morrison, and he looked at all the evidence before him and his book, Who Moved the Stone? And that's a great question. Who moved the stone? These women couldn't move it. And Frank Morrison looked at all the evidence for the resurrection, and he bowed the knee and became a follower of Christ. So thirdly, and finally, what are we to do with this evidence that demands a verdict? Well, friends, we need to put Jesus first. We need to confess faith. And for those of you who haven't been baptized, you need to be baptized in the waters of immersion. We need to be obedient to the Lord and be baptized. So come and speak to Cole or me or your pastor if you're living in a different part of the world. Secondly, we need to be people who tell the good news. That's what Mark commissioned us. Jesus is good news as we mourn as a nation for a truly remarkable man of service, Prince Philip. Jesus is good news. This is not the end. Jesus isn't into a marketing machine. He's a man of truth. He knows more about you than you do. He promises to set people free by his truth, to have sin forgiven, shame dismissed, hell defeated. Jesus has the power to heal, to restore, to renew people's broken lives. We're flawed. We're imperfect. And Jesus takes us with our flaws. He uses us as flawed people to build a kingdom of his for the least and the lost. For the woeful, he makes them wonderful. He takes nice people and sanctifies them with godliness. And friends, we worship an ascended Lord who's gone to the Father, 
who's given us the Holy Spirit, who bestows power. The Greek word is dunamis, dynamite. We not only have a future beyond death, we discover his divine presence and love. Life might be tough, might be lonely, but we are not forlorn, we're not forgotten. We're engraved on God the Father's hands, our names. We have a God and King who is for us, who's not fickle or trite. And so we need to pray God to fill us this week with the Holy Spirit, with power, with love, to be bold to tell the good news, to be obedient. It says in Jeremiah 31, verse 31, as we come to the table of the Lord, the Messiah will usher in a new covenant. A covenant is like it's an agreement, an era, an aeon, a time. And Jeremiah says, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. And the fulfillment, Matthew 26, verse 28, this is my blood of the new era, the new covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Friends, this is the person of Jesus of Nazareth. He's truly awesome. He's the Son of God. He's my Savior. He's Mike's Savior, Tunde's Savior, Amy's Savior, Bodhi's Savior, Kate's Savior. He's my friend and he's alive today. He lives that you might live too, and that Prince Philip too may live. Let's pray together. Father God, on this Eastertide, when we're reminded of that first Easter Sunday and Mark's gospel of hope, of power, of being sent out to declare good news, this is truly good news. Help us all to embrace our risen Saviour this week. May we walk in his truth and his power. May we walk with obedience and love. May we have confidence to share respectfully and gently the good news of Jesus. May your love pour down on this nation. Lord, we ask this in the risen name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.